Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Stablecoins are a core part of the financial plumbing when it comes to cryptocurrency and digital assets. They promise that if you put a dollar in, you'll always be able to get a dollar out. But last week saw one of the largest stablecoins, Terra, lose its peg to the dollar and collapse, costing investors over $40 billion in lost value. I want to know what caused the sudden capitulation, if it was foreseeable, and whether it presents systemic risks to the broader financial system and to us as investors. And later we answer the totally unrelated dumb question of the week. What exactly is a Ponzi scheme? Okay, let's get into it. So stablecoins altogether are worth around $180 billion and are an integral part of the cryptocurrency world. Now, last week we saw one of the major stablecoins, which is called Terra, have a spectacular collapse, costing investors a huge amount of money. Now, Roman, we see crypto projects go to the wall all the time. There's always, every week, some sort of mass collapse of a currency. So why has this one made so much news? What is it that's different? I think the primary difference is the scale and also the rate at which capital has been destroyed. So I've seen various estimates of this, but one of them is that this was around $50 billion, maybe even $70 billion that was lost in the space of a week. So this is literally destruction on an industrial scale. And that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, that's the scale of a big, big hedge fund, for example. Yeah. So for example, the Lehman collapse, the estimates are that that lost people around $60 billion. So this is, you know, a Lehman over the course of just one week. And I think another shocking thing about this is that there are lots of people who are actually shilling the cryptocurrency. So for example, a famous one was Mike Novogratz, who used to be a hedge fund manager but who's now a really famous crypto promoter on Twitter, who actually had a tattoo of Luna on his arm. And he actually tweeted about it. And he said, I'm officially a lunatic. And <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you for my friends at Smith Street Tattoos. And there it is on his arm. So I don't know if you can get those removed. I mean, it's pretty permanent. I think there are ways to get them removed. But it, it, weirdly, that is like only the second most embarrassing permanence of <laughs> Luna. So the creator, Do Kwon, has named his daughter Luna. <laughs> that's oh, like, that's awful. Yeah, poor her. But I think you're right. Like, yes, it's the scale, but also the prestige of some of the backers and the VCs that got this project off the ground. Like, it wasn't this niche, obvious scam. It was a controversial project in crypto. Yeah, I mean, one of the good things that Novogratz has done is he's created an index for crypto which I thought was kind of interesting anyway. His company's called Galaxy Digital Holdings, and there's actually an index of about 20 different cryptocurrencies which he maintains. So I think that's kind of cool. You know, it does offer some diversification. So if you did want to get exposure to this thing, it is something that you can buy on some exchanges. So maybe let's dig into what actually is Terra as a stablecoin, because it has some different features to other stablecoins. It's an algorithmic stablecoin, is what everyone says. Yeah, so let's distinguish between two different types of stablecoin. The idea behind a stablecoin is that instead of having a crazy volatility of, say, 80% or 100% or 200% per year, these things are tied to the value of a dollar. So you put a dollar in, and later on you can take a dollar out. It's always worth a dollar. Why would you ever want such a thing? Why not just use a dollar? Well, if you want to convert your fiat, your normal currency, into cryptocurrency, this is a kind of bridging store of value. And it's easier to kind of move these around inside the cryptocurrency universe than it is, say, to move a dollar, because you can just beam it from one platform to another, for example. 
It's something I've done in the past, just to move money from one platform to another. You can also use it for financing cryptocurrency purchases. So if you want to get leverage, you can use these stable coins to do that. They kind of come in two categories. So one way of ensuring something's worth a dollar is to buy stuff which is really safe, which is worth roughly the same amount as that cryptocurrency. So say, for example, you've got a billion dollars of a stable coin that you and I have created. Let's call it Michael coin. No, let's not call it that. <laughs> Pension trust <laughs> coin if you want to slag off something. And let's say we want to maintain it at a value of $1. Well, what we could do is we could go out and buy really safe stuff like... Dollars, maybe? <laughs> well, dollars would be one thing. Or you could buy treasuries. So really short duration treasuries that are you know about to expire in a week's time. So the idea is that those assets would almost always be exactly equal to the market cap of the stablecoin we're creating. So that's an asset-backed stablecoin. It's asset-backed. It's collateralized fully. Now that's very much like a money market fund. And the game there is not to break the buck. It must never be worth less than $1. It's almost exactly worth $1 always. But it sounds quite straightforward. Why would it ever be worth less than a dollar if you're holding one dollar or something that's basically a dollar for every unit of your fund. Well, that's exactly what happened in 2008. And that was the really shocking event, actually. It wasn't just the default of Lehman that was shocking. It was when a very large money market fund broke the buck. Now, that hadn't happened for a long time in America. So when it did happen, because the value of the assets did fall below one dollar, then a lot of people were trying to take their money out. And then there was this kind of spiral of redemptions. The value of the assets fell further because the fund had to sell the assets in order to maintain the value of the fund. And that pushed down those assets values even more. So I guess the reason it can break the buck is a couple of things, right? It's either they're holding riskier stuff than you think. So I know that commercial paper is often holding there, which is short-term company debt, yeah. which in theory should maintain the value of a dollar, but in an absolute crisis might not. Or they've messed up their accounting somehow and they're holding less reserves than they should be. Exactly. Those are the two kind of worrying scenarios. Now, in this case, that's not what happened because this wasn't a normal asset-backed stablecoin. So that would include things like USDC, USD coin and Tether, for example. Yeah, so they have assets which, in theory, should be able to repay everyone if everyone tried to redeem their money at the same time. If there's a run on the stablecoin, like a run on a bank, yeah, that's what would happen. But that's actually one, one case I'm really worried about, but maybe we'll come back to that. We'll come on to that, yeah. But this isn't that, is it? No, this is not that. Terra is not that. They don't have assets. No. So the way this works is based on an algorithm and my favourite type of trade an arbitrage trade. Okay. Arbitrage. <laughs> arbitrage. <Yes. laughs> so just as a recap for those who don't remember from last week. Uh, those at the back who've not been listening to us every week. <laughs> <laughs> but, but an arbitrage trade is where two things are effectively the same thing and they have different prices. So for example, you can have a treasury which is split into its cash flows, which is trading at a different price than the treasury itself. So those two things, if they're out of line, you sell the expensive one, you buy the cheap one, and it brings the prices back into line. Yeah, you can make a small profit by the mismatch of prices, and that's what keeps prices aligned. And critically, that trade, the arbitrage trade, is risk-free because you're going long and short the same thing, and you've got no directional risk. 
So risk-free trade, bring two prices back into line, everyone's happy. You know, you've done a job for capitalism, hurrah. So that's your arbitrage (laughs) trade. So the key thing here is that this was based on two tokens, right? So let's say we're creating one of these ecosystems for a kind of algorithmic stablecoin. We create two imaginary tokens, which are worth nothing, let's face it. We just make them up. Let's call them something stupid like Terra and Luna. (laughs) The idea is that one of these is always convertible. So in this case, let's say Terra is always convertible for $1 worth of Luna. Okay. The word that's doing all the heavy lifting there is worth. And then $1 worth of Luna is always worth one Terra. Okay? Yes. So the two are convertible. Terra is the one that's pegged to the dollar. Yeah. So that's the one we're trying to maintain it, you know, it's dollar peg. And Luna floats about all over the place. Yeah. So let's say that people suddenly believe that Luna has value. Well, suddenly we're in business because now what we can do is create a smart contract that says that convertibility is in place from Luna to Terra and Terra to Luna. That's the algorithm, which people talk about the algorithmic backing. It's this, right? Yeah. So let's say that Terra trades for more than a dollar. So what you could do then is do the arbitrage trade, right? So you sell your Terra and you sell it for more than a dollar, but then you can convert it into a dollar's worth of Luna. Yeah, so you've made a profit because you've sold it for more than a dollar and now you've got a dollar's worth of stuff back. Yeah, so let's say it was crazily out of, out of whack. So let's say it was selling for a dollar and 10 cents, Terra. I can sell that for a dollar and 10 cents. I get a dollar's worth of Luna, which I can then sell for a dollar. So I've made an instant 10 cent profit. And there's also some incentives which you're paid actually to do the arbitrage trade. So, you know, for an arbitrageur in this market, in this ecosystem, as long as Luna has value, everything's fine. You can do the arbitrage trade. The value of Terra will stay very close to $1 as a result. And you've got a stable currency. It sounds so simple. Well, no, it doesn't. It sounds ridiculously complicated. But <laughs> the flaw <laughs> is that sentence, as long as Luna has value, right? Which fundamentally, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't really have any value whatsoever. Because if people walk away from this ecosystem, then nobody's going to do the arbitrage trade and effectively it breaks down. So how did it come to have value? Because it did. This worked for a while. Well, remember, the one thing that cryptocurrency is great at is marketing and convincing people that something which is essentially valueless has value. And the irony is that while people believe that, it's true. You know, if if you can find someone to trade, I don't know, a stone for a million dollars, then that stone is worth a million dollars. You know, it's a subjective valuation. But as soon as people realise that the stone's worth nothing, then suddenly it no longer has value. Yeah, I mean, that's not unique to cryptocurrency, is it? The art market works like that, for instance. Yeah, like the Warhol painting that just sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, is it an amazing piece of art? I don't really know. I'm a physicist, you know. <laughs> so I've got no idea. How much is the paint on the canvas worth? <laughs> Tell me about the refractive properties of the pigments on the surface. Yeah, I mean, I've got no idea, right? So obviously somebody thinks it's worth a lot and it has value as a result. I also think that it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read any Neil Gaiman. Votan, you know, the Norse god, he only has power if people believe in him. And it's very similar to cryptocurrency, I think, because, you know, the elder gods of cryptocurrency, you know, they have no intrinsic strength until there are enough believers. Unfortunately, there are lots of believers out there. 
And this was no exception. You know, there were lots of people who loved this ecosystem and the value of Luna surged in terms of dollars for a very long period of time. So it was, you know, it worked. It worked incredibly well. And I think there were a couple of things behind it, right? So the whole ecosystem promised that it was going to do kind of what Ethereum does and allow smart contracts and, you know, really add some actual utility and value. And the other thing was it offered an interest rate of 20% per year. <laughs> That's always going to draw some people in. Yeah, so if you held Terra, there was something called the Anchor Protocol, which is a decentralized lender that was built on Terra's blockchain. And like you say, that offered a very high interest rate for people who are holding Terra. I mean, that's an immediate red flag, right? Offering an interest rate of 20% on what is meant to be a safe US dollar peg thing. Yeah, I think that's one of the red flags I always look for. If you've got an interest rate much higher than, say, I don't know, US treasuries, then it's not a question of whether there is risk. It's a question of what the risk actually is, which in this case was a kind of existential risk that people realised Luna was worth nothing. Yeah, and so maybe let's discuss how it actually collapsed, because maybe it was kind of teetering for a while, but like you say, why the belief's there, it sustains itself. But then a lot of people said it went into a death spiral, which sounds dramatic, and it was dramatic. It collapsed from, you know, billions of dollars to almost zero in a matter of days. So I think as long as the value of Luna, as we said, doesn't fall precipitously, then people are quite happy to do the arbitrage, you know, because you end up holding some of this stuff, you earn an interest rate on it, and, you know, there'll be lots of people willing to do the trades. I think the real problem starts if there's a big fall in risk appetite, and particularly for cryptocurrency. I think it's not a kind of coincidence that we've seen a very sharp fall in cryptocurrency prices since November of 2021. So, for example, if we look at the value of Bitcoin, it's down about 56% as we make this recording, and Ethereum's down by a similar amount, about 58% over that fairly short period of time. So people are clearly stepping back from cryptocurrency at the moment as prices are falling. And if you have some small coins, generally they tend to sell off more. It's kind of analogous to what happens with emerging markets and developed markets. You know, when developed markets fall, emerging markets fall more because they're seen as more risky. So small coins, those tend to fall more in a cryptocurrency sell-off. I mean, we can call them small, but it, you know, it was a top 10 cryptocurrency, Luna. This isn't like some minuscule coin collapsing. Yeah, true, true, true. I mean, but it wasn't like, you know, the biggies, which is... Basically just Bitcoin and Ethereum, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the backdrop. I mean, some people have said there's some kind of conspiracy theory that it was actually BlackRock, you know, the massive asset manager. Well, that's all nonsense. But of course it's nonsense. You know, they're not going to even be interested in this ecosystem or, or this cryptocurrency. Or it was Citadel. Although BlackRock did issue a statement where they said we were not involved in this, which I thought was just amazing. Like they had to <laughs> deny they were involved in bringing down a cryptocurrency. I mean, to know BlackRock, you know, they're one of the most, well, the biggest and probably the most conservative asset manager on the planet, right? Oh, yeah. I think I worked out that if you took all of the cash managed by BlackRock, it would actually be the size of an asteroid and it would have its own fairly big gravitational pull. I called it a cash droid. Anyway. Very good. I, di <laughs> I digress. I've looked into it a little bit and what seems to have caused the massive sell-off now is that Terra was migrating its assets from something called a three pool to a four pool. Now let's not get into all the details of that, but it basically meant liquidity was really low at this point in time. And either there was some kind of attack by short sellers or people just saw the low liquidity and panicked. And a lot of people sold Terra at the same time and Luna and it kind of went into this negative feedback loop. 
And that's the key thing. Now, if you're someone that's old and jaded like me, and you looked at the design of this ecosystem, you immediately see the flaw because this is something which is very similar to something that's called a death spiral convertible, which suffers from a similar problem. So shall we go into a death spiral convertible? Definitely go into that. Because <laughs> okay. these all do have like analogous things in the traditional world of finance, right? We've seen it all before, but just in the crypto space, it's all happening now. But it's, it's funny because I was talking to Laura about this and we were saying it's just like kids, you know, you don't want your kids to make the same mistakes as you. But, you know, in TradFi, this stuff is very well known and a kind of design flaw. But anyway, so death spiral convertibles. The way this works is, let's say that you've got a convertible bond. If people don't know, it's a bond which is issued by a company, which is convertible to the company's shares. And there are various things that can trigger the conversion. It could be that the share price rises. So that's like a standard convertible bond. And so, you know, you've got a bond, it turns into equity and everything's great. Or you can have, and brace yourself here, this is going to sound familiar, You've got a bond which converts into a certain dollar's worth of shares. Anything where it always says dollar's worth, I think, hmm, (laughs) you can just print as much as you want here. (laughs) So you can see the problem immediately, which is that, you know, if you've got a $100 face value of debt issued by a company and it's convertible into $100 worth of equity issued by that company, then as long as the share price is fairly stable, that's not a problem. You know, if it's a profitable company and it's kind of sound, then you could sell some of your shares once they're converted and it won't affect the price much. But the same problem of confidence kicks in and liquidity. So let's say that something knocks down confidence in the company. People may then decide to get out while they can. They'll convert their corporate bonds, their $100 worth of corporate bonds, into, say, 20 shares. They'll sell the shares and then the price of the shares goes down. Well, suddenly the shares are now worth, say, $1. So more people panic. More people panic and you want to be first out of the doors. You sell your $100 worth of bond and now it's going to give you 100 shares, which you immediately sell because you want to be rid of it. And the shares go down again. And this is your death spiral, right? So, so, So you can see that this has happened before. And companies still issue death spiral convertibles because if it's a sound company, that's not a problem. If it's generating cash flows, which is strong, if it's selling a product which is useful, then, you know, it's not going to go into the death spiral. But for something which is essentially upheld by faith in something which is effectively worthless... Well, that's a much bigger risk, I'd say. Definitely. And I've heard a lot of people describe the sort of lunar terror ecosystem as a perpetual motion machine. Like the idea is you can create this thing which will just keep chugging along without the input of new energy. But that's not the case. It will gradually slow down if you don't keep adding reserves to it. So it has it has very strong Ponzi attributes, which is the constant inflow of money effectively is what keeps the machine going. And it's interesting, isn't it? So they claimed that this algorithm was a way of just, you know, keeping this peg and it would work. But then on the side, they also developed the Lunar Foundation Guard, LFG, which was there to defend the peg to the dollar. And it had, I think, three to four billion dollars of assets primarily held in Bitcoin. So that kind of made me think, well, if you're so confident this algorithm works and you've created a perpetual motion machine, why do you need this big fund to sort of defend the value? It's so funny because during 2021, everyone was saying, when are central banks going to create their own digital currencies? But of course, now we're talking about creating effectively a central bank for the cryptocurrencies. Yeah. So instead of central bank digital currency, we've got digital currency central banks effectively. That's what the LFG is. 
So what they had was a reserve of about $3.2 billion worth in crypto. So they had about just under $3 billion worth of Bitcoin. They've now exhausted that because one way to bail out the whole infrastructure is to simply buy some of the cryptocurrency and push up its price. Yeah, so they'd buy Terra to defend that price when other people were selling it. And that's kind of how an emerging market currency works, right? They'll have this sovereign reserve fund and when their currency comes under attack, they'll start using their own reserves of dollars, say, to buy their currency. Yeah, yeah, it's a very similar idea. And in this case, the worry was that that would destabilize Bitcoin. And it's, you know, it's a good thing that there's enough liquidity in Bitcoin that it absorbed that sale without any hiccups. And obviously it didn't push up the share price, it probably pushed it down. Share price? Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm so tradfine. But it was, <laughs> so the worry was that this would push down the value of Bitcoin in fiat currency. And that's actually not what happened. It was fairly stable. Well, it did push it down a little bit. Well, I mean, obviously it probably pushed it down a bit. Yeah. You dump $3 billion worth of Bitcoin into the market at once, it does push the value down. So that was one of the theories of if there was a short attack, that's probably how they did it, is that they went short Bitcoin. And when they shorted Terra, it forced this reserves into the market and therefore they made a profit on their short. Yeah. So maybe that's true. Maybe it is the case that somebody's profited massively. I mean, the fact that the blockchain is very transparent would show you the trades which would have profited from that. You know, maybe someone will do a forensic analysis and see exactly what went on. But, you know, personally, I think it's much more likely just to be a liquidity issue and then a confidence issue, which triggered the death spiral. I mean, the thing is, it's a little bit irrelevant, isn't it? It could have been an attack by short sellers. And if an attack was possible, then it was always going to happen at some point. But it didn't need it to bring down something like this. But the thing is, I think it probably could recover from this if they could actually produce enough of a Luna to allow the arbitrage to happen. But it, now it's at a point where you'd have to create so many bazillion gajillion of these Luna <laughs> in order to do the conversion that, you know, it's not going to be... I mean, it's a very weird bailout, put it that way. Well, Luna went from having around 700 million tokens on the 5th of May to having over 7 trillion by the 13th of May. So you talk about hyperinflation, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> This is a kind of Zimbabwean version of, of cryptocurrency. I mean, the way I think about this whole thing is it's a little bit like when you've got children playing on a seesaw and it goes up and down, but it's basically stable. It keeps coming back into line. It all seems to work well as long as there's confidence until one kid jumps off and then boom, everyone's <laughs> crying as the other kid hits the floor. And, you know, printing your way out of an inflationary problem is never a good solution. So, you know, I don't think that's a viable way of, of saving it, although that was what one of the founders suggested. I think it's gone, isn't it? It's done its death spiral and it's in the sort of last throes of it. Or maybe it'll just reinvent itself. That's what usually happens with cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. Doquan will be back. <laughs> that's right. There are still enough people that believe it. But I'll tell you the tweet that really broke my heart. Shall I read it out? Yes. We need some sort of sad tweet music okay. in the background. <laughs> Can you do that, Michael? <laughs> I'll try. Okay. <laughs> so there was a tweet from Do Kwon, who's one of the people who's a founder of the Lunar Terra ecosystem. And he came out with this really confident thread that said, Terra's return to form will be a sight to behold. We're here to stay and we're going to keep making noise. And then there's a nice picture of a little moon. And this poor chap responded, I'm changing all my Bitcoin for Luna because Luna has fallen 96%. It can only fall a 4% maximum now. 
Okay, there's a mathematical problem here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I read that and I just thought, my work here is not done. And that's what my tweet said. I mean, let's just clarify that wherever it is, it can still fall another 100%. <laughs> that's right. But I mean, you know, you can fall another 50%, then another 50%, then another 50% forever. And that's the way percentages work, sadly. But, but then he, even more heartbreaking, he says, plus I trust you and the community. And really, that's what this is about. You know, I think lots of people relate to the game once Luna was popular, and those are people who've lost almost everything. So I think that's the real tragedy with all of these Ponzi schemes is somebody's made money out of it. Maybe, you know, several people have made money out of it, but it's the vast majority of people who are trusting, who've probably committed too much capital. That's the real tragedy. I mean, in a way, it was good that it popped now rather than if it had gone up to hundreds of billions of dollars in value and become even more of a systemic problem. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's why, you know, I'm concerned about the other types of stablecoin, because I think a lot of them could actually create contagion into the standard financial markets, traditional finance. Oh, that's interesting. Because if you look at the actual assets which they buy, I mean, the analogy I always like to use is that it's like pigs feeding from the same trough. If you've got money market funds buying the same things as these non-algorithmic stable coins like Tether. Yeah, the asset-backed ones. The asset-backed ones, which are effectively buying the same assets as money market funds. So that's commercial paper, short-dated US treasuries, certificates of deposit. I assume that's what they own. So if there is a run on stable coin, then there'll also be a triggered fall in asset values, which could cause a run on traditional money market funds. Now, the reason why that matters is because let's say you buy something risky. So let's say you buy, I don't know, a risky equity. You expect it to be risky. You know, if it falls by 10%, it's not a surprise. But if you put your life savings into a money market fund, expecting it to keep its value, well, there you would be shocked if it lost its value. You know, it could destroy people's livelihoods and life savings. I think the issue here, isn't it, is that they behave like money market funds. They hold the same things. They make the same promise dollar in, dollar out, but they're not regulated in the same way. They don't have to prove their reserves and they don't have to justify their accounting. So Tether is the one that's always talked about as having questionable policies around its reserves. And there was an interesting uh, interview with their chief technology officer in the FT the other week, and they were asking about the reserves behind Tether. And he said, oh, we're not going to discuss it because it's commercially sensitive and we don't want to give our secret source. I mean, there shouldn't be a secret source. You should be holding the super safe stuff. I don't want secret source when it comes to money market funds. Yeah, we want safety. Uh, you should be boring. You know, that's that's the way it should work. You know, I'm a big fan of boring, as you know, Michael. And, you know, this is probably the most boring of all different funds. You know, it's got to be super safe, super boring. And not being transparent about what they own, I think, is is a huge red flag. And they've got into trouble before legally. So it said its currency was backed with, quote, US dollars. And then in 2021, the New York Attorney General said that was a lie, to quote him. And now it simply claims that it's backed 100% by Tether's reserves. And also the US Commodities Futures Trading Commission, they fined Tether, I think it was around $40 million for claiming they made untrue or misleading statements about its reserves. So, you know, it's not like this is coming out of nowhere if Tether gets into trouble. And I guess the interesting thing as well is that Tether briefly, very briefly, broke the dollar peg and fell to 95 cents before recovering. And I think confidence has been a bit shaken. So over $7 billion were withdrawn from Tether. Yeah, so I think, you know, that's always going to be a worry, which is that, you know, there is a run on cryptocurrency. 
And there isn't any kind of legislation really in place to ensure those reserves are absolutely bulletproof, which they have to be now that it's become a systemic risk. So I think regulators have got a fairly short window until the size of these cryptocurrencies becomes a real problem in terms of destabilizing the financial system globally. It's already a systemic risk, I think. Yeah, I mean, if Tether did go down in a similar fashion to Terra, well, maybe it couldn't go down in the same way because it has some reserves, like there is something backing it, even if it wasn't 100% collateralized. But if it took a big hit, then yes, it would affect money market funds probably, but also maybe the crypto exchanges because they are really reliant on Tether. Yeah, there's a whole ecosystem that's built on top of these things with the assumption of stability. If you park money in something that's supposed to be worth a dollar, again, it's the perceived risk you probably would take a lot of risk because you know it's supposed to be safe. So yeah, who knows what the repercussions will be. It's just impossible to predict. You never really know where the problems are until, you know, you kind of shake the tree and see what falls out. I mean, does this not really suggest that maybe the time has come for central bank digital currencies? Or is that just sort of anathema to people in the crypto space? They want these things which are not reliant on TradFi, as you call it. But then they kind of are, right, already. Like Tether is, if it's backed by safe things that are liable to be frozen by the US government, like Russia's learned, then it already is reliant, right? So why not just have a central bank digital currency? I think pretending that, you know, you can live in this ecosystem that is separate from the traditional world is purely make-believe. That's just simply not true. Everything's ultimately grounded in real currency. Sorry, fiat currency. So I think... <laughs> So, you know, I think that central bank digital currency doesn't really solve the problem in the sense that, you know, is it a payment system? Could be. But in, in, in much of Europe, we don't really need it because we have almost instantaneous electronic payment systems, which, you know, are very easy to use. So I don't think it really adds much value. I don't, I'm not convinced there's a real need for central bank digital currencies. I think what there is a need for is regulation for these pseudo banks, which is effectively what they are. You know, if it smells like a bank and it acts like a bank, then it should be regulated like a bank. Does it smell like a bank? What did the bank you worked at smell like? <laughs> oh, it was pretty bad sometimes. <laughs> Have I ever told you about the mice on the trading floor? No, go for it. Is that a euphemism or like genuine? <laughs> it's a real thing. So, you know, you'd be working late at night, which as a strategist I often was. And, you know, the lights would switch off because, you know, it was kind of one of these movement operated lights. And you get bored of moving your chair around to switch them back on. But then out of the corner of your eye, you'd see the trading floor move. And it was lots of scurrying under the desks because lots of people used to keep food in the desks and these mice would suddenly appear. When the traders are away, the mice will play. And they did. <laughs> it was quite unpleasant. Yeah, one of my mates will be happy we're doing this episode. Um, he listens every week and he says he always enjoys listening to Romin slag off crypto. And then he said, if you want to make Romin's brain melt, ask him what would happen if the Fed started buying tons of crypto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. That's for sure. But look, if it was a systemically important thing, like, I don't know, let's say that Tether did become systemically important you know, maybe the central banks would have to buy it or at least shore up its value. But I think that's a long way off. <laughs> the two halves of you would be pulled, the Fed loving half and the crypto hating half. <laughs> Jerome would never do that to me. No. <laughs> I think, look, I mean, things like money market funds, what the Fed actually did was to ensure that the assets which the Fed was buying was stabilised. 
So that's what the US Treasury did, you know, in terms of its troubled asset relief programs. TARP. So TARP, yeah, effectively it let third parties buy those troubled assets with a kind of guarantee from the Fed. So indirectly, it was kind of backing them. So indirectly, the central bank could kind of shore up these funds. But directly, no way. I can't no see way. the Fed doing <laughs> No, I can't see that happening. <laughs> Not even the Japanese central bank would do that. Believe it or not, we do discuss cryptocurrency and pension craft because many of our members are interested in it. If you want to join the conversation on pension craft about cryptocurrency or Ponzi schemes or investment in general, then just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, so today's dumb question of the week is what is a Ponzi scheme? It seems particularly relevant now, Roman. So what is it? What is this Ponzi scheme? We always talk about it, but let's define it. So the idea here is that it's a scam, right? So it's illegal. And the idea is that you create a fund, you convince people to put money into it, and then you say you're going to pay them a high return. But what actually happens is the business is fraudulent. It doesn't generate any profits. And what you're doing is new money that comes into the fund is used to pay off people who are leaving the fund or paying them interest. Now, that works beautifully. For so long. <laughs> For so long, until money stops flowing into the fund. At that point, you can't pay off the redemptions for people taking money out. You can't pay the interest for the existing scheme members because new money's not there to do it. So at that point, either you go to prison or you kind of disappear into thin air, hopefully. So it's quite a simple structure, isn't it? Is you're just lying to people, taking money that's coming in and, and giving it to the old people. You just want to be early in to the, to the scam. That, that's right. So the people who benefit from it are obviously the people who organise it, but also the people who are into the scheme very early on because they get the very high returns and hopefully cash out early on before the thing implodes. And the name Ponzi, where does that come from? So this is Charles Ponzi. So yes, I have read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> 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 but in fact, he wasn't the first. And if you actually read Dickens, it's actually mentioned in Martin Chuzzlewit and also in Little Dorrit. Okay, two of the lesser known Dickens. I mean, I was Oliver Twist in the school play. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Please, sir, can I have some more? I mean, that's what everyone says after a Ponzi scheme, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but the inflows have stopped, so no, you can't. <laughs> It's gruel for you. But I read Little Dorrit and I don't remember that at all. I mean, you mentioned Charles Ponzi and his thing was around, I believe, US postage stamps. International reply coupons for postage stamps. Yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme, which is an interesting thing, built around the most boring thing in postage stamps. <laughs> but at a certain point, you know, he's just stopped doing any kind of legitimate conversion and then it just became a confidence scheme. Yeah, so what are some of the signs then that something is a Ponzi scheme? Because often we'll see these things especially in the crypto space, for instance, where you're kind of like, is this an outright scam or is it kind of well-intentioned and has some sort of small chance of working? Well, first of all, I think you have to be fairly convinced that this is a real business. Now, hopefully the person who's founded it has a track record and, you know, it's an audited business, hopefully. But if it is based on a kind of business venture which hasn't been audited, which is unregulated, you know, so let's say, for example, that it is something like stamps or something like property in some far-flung part of the world or any anything which isn't to a kind of regulated and liquid financial asset like equity or bonds. 
anything which is based on those kind of assets could potentially be a scam because you just have to take it on faith that they've got a real business behind it. Second thing might be that they offer very high returns and say that it comes with low risk. That's always a red flag. Yeah, I think the big one, isn't it, is if it seems too good to be true, it probably is, or it always is. (laughs) But low risk, high return, that should immediately set off alarm bells in your head because that's just impossible. As you said before, risk reward is fundamental to investing. And this is what really intrigued me about yield farming. I made a whole video about yield farming when I looked at exactly this problem, which is that you know, if you put money into some of these cryptocurrencies, you can earn a yield of, say, 5, 6, even, you know, 10, 12%. And actually, you can do it for stable coins. Where does that money come from? Where does the income come from, unless I'm taking a really large risk? That's what worried me. But where does the money come from on yield farming? Well, for yield farming, if, if they want to borrow... So, you know, you can actually lend out your cryptocurrency. And if there's a big demand for it, presumably that would generate lending fees. But of course, again, people will only do that to leverage their trades if the market's going up and there's confidence in the cryptocurrency. So at the moment, I expect that the rates have come down as the demand to lend has fallen. But still, you know, you're getting a return which is well above interest rates that you'd get for normal assets. So there must be a risk somewhere. I mean, the risk is that there's huge leverage internalised in the crypto system and price drops are going to unwind that leverage and everything's going to fall. Yeah, I think that's, that's the risk and people should just be aware of that. But if it is marketed to you as something safe, then expect the interest rate to be like cash because that's what you should get. So that's another red flag. I guess the kind of person who is promoting it also should be a red flag because we saw lots of people promoting, for example, Terra and Luna, who maybe were a little bit questionable. But they had the tattoos to prove that they were really into it, Robin. I I don't know what more evidence you need. Yeah, that kind of level of commitment is surely proof that they're honest, I know. And another sign that something's not quite right is complexity. If you don't understand something, there's a good chance that they could be hiding fees or much worse, fraud. So, you know, something which is transparent with as few layers between you and a regulated asset as possible is almost certainly the best way to go for most people. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was kind of guessing at last week a bit when we discussed CDOs and these kind of complex structures is yeah, maybe they're not outright scams, but it's so complex. Like As a retail investor, there's not really a way to know whether that is a scam unless you're on the inside. And you can hide a lot of unpleasantness inside the complexity. You know, it's trading fees, it's essentially clauses which say that if the market breaks down, it'll not go in your favour, which was the case in many of those CDOs, for example. I guess another red flag is difficulty taking out your money. So if you go to the platform and say, look, I'd like to take my money out, and they're kind of humming and hawing, well, that should worry you. Yeah. They say, well, no, we'll just up your interest rate. You can stay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay then. Yeah. <laughs> that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that, you know, there's a huge incentive for the Ponzi scheme runner to, to ensure that, you know, people stay in the thing for as long as possible. I mean, do you think that all bubbles in unproductive assets, so assets that aren't generating cash flows, are they always Ponzi schemes, either wittingly or unwittingly? Well, things like gold, you know, it doesn't generate cash flows. Is it a Ponzi scheme? Probably not, because, you know, there's something tangible, a metal that you can actually own physically. And it is used for something, so there is a flaw to it, right? If it has some real use case, then it can't go to zero. 
But, but there's actually an economist called Hyman Minsky who had a classification of different assets and he kind of classified it into three groups. And what he was talking about was financial stability. Now, the kind of typical traditional finance thing would be what he called hedge financing, where you've got something which is issued where the income cash flows fulfill all of the contract obligations for that entity, plus the repayment of capital. So it can cover all of its debts, the interest payments and the principal repayments with its income. So that's completely above board. So you bought a house with a mortgage, you're renting it out, and the rent you get covers the interest payments and is repaying down that capital. Yeah, so eventually it'll be able to repay it. Then we've got the kind of speculative finance, which is kind of an intermediate risk bucket. Now, the idea here is that it's got enough revenue to fulfill all of its payment obligations. So these are like the coupons on a bond, but it doesn't have enough to pay the principal back. Yes. So this is we bought a house with an interest only mortgage. The rent we're getting in on the house is enough to pay back the interest only mortgage, but we're not paying back that capital. Well, many, many corporate bonds are in this situation where the company will not repay all of its bonds. All it does is roll over the debt. Or governments, you know, any government in developed markets will be doing this as well. They never repay all of their debt. They just roll it over forever. And, you know, banks are pretty much the same. You know, they've always got those liabilities which they don't repay. So that's called speculative finance. But the really toxic one, which he said was unstable and created crises, was called Ponzi finance. And here you can't repay the coupons and you can't repay the principal. So this is a blockchain house in the metaverse. (laughs) (laughs) And remember, if you get a default in the metaverse, you default in the real world. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's the problem, right? I think a lot of this Ponzi finance is a pretty good description of what's going on in a lot of the crypto space. Not all of it, I don't think, but a lot of it. And a lot of the arguments which people tout for why cryptocurrency is actually the safe store of value, it's an inflation hedge, basically we've kind of ticked off each one and just shown it's you know nonsense. So I think the case for cryptocurrency is certainly a lot weaker now than it was just six months ago because of this kind of pullback in risk appetite and the fall we've seen in values and money flowing out of the asset class. But you know, if it survives this test... And really, there's the, the kind of worthiness of any asset class is how many crises it survived. ETFs have been through many crises now and come out with flying colours. But if cryptocurrency comes out through the other side of this crisis, with some of its essential features intact, I think that's actually a pretty good test of the asset class. Yeah, I mean, let's see, because crypto has never been around in an environment where interest rates are going up. Yeah, so rising interest rates, less risk appetite and geopolitical instability. You know, all of these things make people take risk off the table and the flows have reversed and now people are selling more than they're buying. And if it survives that, I think that's a pretty good sign of health for the asset class. But I think many coins will go to the wall. Terra is just one example of it. And we'll probably be left with just the hardcore survivors. Yeah, I think there's one use case, which to me is still there, which is the ability to operate outside of government control, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing. But for example, the trucking protests in Canada, where the Canadian government was freezing the bank accounts and the assets of people who were involved in the protest and also just people who were supporting it and sending money, you know, whether you agreed with the truckers or not. I mean, personally, I didn't. That's not my politics. But you can easily switch around, right, (laughs) depending on who's in the administration. And especially in parts of the world which are less stable, I can see a use case for things like Bitcoin, where your domestic currency is not a safe haven. 
or you don't trust your government. Yeah, so I think that's the one that's still standing for me in terms of use cases. But I think that's the one which is most likely to be threatened because clearly governments are not going to like the fact that you can circumvent their checks and controls on their populace. You know, that's not going to go down well with any government. So I'm not convinced that that kind of loophole is going to carry on existing for some of these cryptocurrencies. But then you see countries which are... So one example is El Salvador, which is a country which doesn't have particularly strong finances, but which has created Bitcoin as an official currency in the country. You know, it's effectively a very poor country, which can't really afford these kind of monetary experiments. And yet, you know, they've lost a lot already through their Bitcoin purchases. But the president keeps on doubling down on this. And, you know, the, the uptake hasn't been great in his country. If you're a poor stallholder selling food on the street, then I don't really see that Bitcoin adds a lot of value to that person. So I think the case for some countries in developing markets, adopting Bitcoin as an alternative currency, I'm not completely convinced, put it that way. And it might actually lead to greater instability because when the price does fall, then the country's wealth falls with it. So if you do take a large position, it, it could actually destabilise the country rather than help it. Yeah, I think that's true. And maybe we finish with a provocative question around Ponzi schemes, which I see people suggesting is that are unfunded state pension schemes Ponzi schemes? Because there's no assets backing them and it's just relying on taking taxes off the current working population <laughs> to pay for the old population. And the working population is shrinking. <laughs> I only worked this out recently because I had a client who was on a power hour with me, who was a doctor, and they were explaining how the state pension works for doctors and nurses. And they were saying it's not invested in anything. It's just the existing people who work for the NHS, the National Health Service, who pay the pensioners of today. Now, of course, if it's not invested, it's not going to grow. And that means that if the NHS shrinks at some point, I don't know, maybe the UK population falls or we just can't afford an NHS anymore, then, you know, there's a real problem because there won't be enough people to pay existing pension holders. So that could be a real problem. Yeah, I mean, it's underwritten by the state. So it often comes back to, will the state be able to make good on its promises? But it has the, some of the characteristics of a Ponzi scheme, right? Yeah, but it's a government-backed Ponzi scheme. So you, know, you do have the UK Treasury behind it. That is some reassurance. So at least it's kind of like Her Majesty's government, which is going to back it if things go bad. Isn't like everything a Ponzi scheme when you think about it, though? Just life is a Ponzi scheme, really. <laughs> We're all here paying up for the old people. <laughs> oh, Michael, as an old person, I have to say that's not true. We're very productive. <laughs> old people are very productive. Yeah, next time you want childcare and you ask your parents to do it. Yeah, but they were first through the door. Like, that's the Ponzi thing, isn't it? Like, the older people <laughs> reaping the rewards. <laughs> they were early enough. Well, look at it this way. One day, you'll be there. Yeah, but they'll have collapsed by then. Maybe. Maybe. I doubt it. <laughs> I'm only joking. I don't actually think any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Mum. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. If you've enjoyed the show, it'd be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on your podcast platform. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.